worship team. Let's give them appreciation for leading us week in and week out. I want to say good morning to you uh, also. Uh, my name is Rodney. I have the, the pleasure of serving on uh, the team here. And uh, we've been looking at Romans chapter 8 this summer. Uh, last week, Daniel Dixon was here from uh, D.C. And he was like, great. This part of the letter where we are in Romans 8 is about suffering and waiting. Well, I don't feel too bad for him because the passage today continues with suffering. Uh, more of that. And it adds in predestination. So... Yeah, oh. <laughs> but uh, Chris, our lead pastor, uh, b- before he went on sabbatical, had strategically lined up our church plant partners to cover this section of the letter. Uh, one of our church plant partners was going to be here with us today, and circumstances arose, and he wasn't able to. So that plan totally backfired uh, for ha- to have them cover suffering. <laughs> but but, uh, but that's okay. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll roll with that today. Uh, and in all seriousness, this is a, a truly amazing passage in Romans 8, only three verses but it's just jam-packed with some of the greatest promises of God that we see all in, in, in all of Scripture. Uh, it includes one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture, but it's, it's uh, one of the most misunderstood and misused as well. So we want to avoid that, uh, obviously, but we want to anchor ourselves in the great hope that this passage gives to us and, and, and what God has for us. So I want to start uh, by telling you a story, and it's a true story. I feel like I have to tell you that uh, up front and clarify that this is true. Uh, this is about a woman named Nicole, okay? Nicole uh, grew up in a Christian family. Uh, she, her family attended church, uh, maybe like some of you here. She attended a, a good church, had a good experience in her family growing up. Uh, she came to Christ at an early age. Uh, she participated in things probably not, not much different from uh, kids camp like we had just recently, those kinds of things. She was baptized and, and started following Jesus. She had a good family, good set of friends, and, and just had a good life. It's the kind of life that we would all want for our children or for our grandchildren. Uh, it's, it's what we would all hope for. Well, when Nicole was in her late teens, early 20s time frame, uh, some of those things started to fall apart. Over the course of a few years, uh, Nicole endured some mental and emotional abuse from a coach that was really influential in her life, she was really close to. Her dad came out that he had been living a double life and was not at all the person who she thought he was growing up. In her early 20s, she was a victim of a, of a very serious assault. She was struggling with the, the trauma and the effects of all that, and she moved across country and was removed from her support system, all of the family structure that she had, um, and she endured a miscarriage and then had a cancer diagnosis and started to enter into that treatment. I want you to think about that situation and, and where Nicole started and then how things started to, to spiral downward. And, and here's a question. If you were to meet Nicole at that period of her life, after all of that happened, what would you say to her? What would you say to her about God? What would you say, say to her about how to understand her circumstances? What would you say to her about her future? Is there, is there any hope? Is there anything you would try to offer her in terms of encouragement? What, what would you say to her? This kind of thing hits close to home for 
all of us at, at some point, um, more, for some of us more recently than others, right here in our church family, in the, in the past couple of weeks, we have had uh, people in our church family who have tragically lost adult children. We have people who have received very serious medical diagnoses. There are people in our church family who are walking through sickness, some who have dealt with the, the death of a friend. Maybe for you, it's, it's not something quite that intense. Maybe it's the loss of a job. Maybe it's the loss of a relationship. Last week, Daniel Dixon shared about a friend who uh, trusted the wrong person, the person he thought was a friend, and um, his life savings put, put into uh, a, a financial situation that, that went south, and he lost everything, and he had to dec declare bankruptcy. What do we do in those situations? Where do we go for hope? If it's a friend, what, what do you say to them? I mean, do you, do you say, well, there's a silver lining? Every dark cloud has a silver lining. You say something like, something like little orphan Annie saying, right, that the sun's going to come out tomorrow, it's, it's going to be okay, it's going to get better. What hope can we really offer in those kind of circumstances? Is, and is there any indication that God is there and he's doing anything or, or that he's not just sitting idly by? Is he aware? Is he involved? Well, God's word addresses these things in, in quite a number of places, actually. But today we're going to see a, a very clear but maybe a very unexpected answer to that question about what God is doing in the midst of these kinds of things. That there is hope and there is good news that God's doing something. But what is he doing? What's he doing? That's what we're going to see in the passage as we look at Romans 8 today. So if you would join me in prayer, and let's pray before we go into God's word and ask for his help. Heavenly Father, we, we come in uh, from different places um, to, to this time together today as we look at your word. Uh, some of us have had very, very trying weeks and, and maybe some of the worst times of our lives. Uh, others of us have had a really good week. Things have just gone pretty well. Uh, others of us have just had normal, kind of average week. Wh wherever we're coming from, Lord, would you, would you meet us right at that place? And by the truth of your word, would you help us to see what you're doing and, and would you help us to anchor ourselves in the hope that you offer us in your word and by your spirit? So we just ask you to open our eyes, open our hearts to see wonderful things in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'd invite you to open to Romans chapter 8. If you have a Bible with you or an app, uh, if, you, if you don't, there, the words will be up on the screens today. Um, remember, as, as we're going into Romans 8, this is a letter. So the, the first century form of that, it's called an epistle. So you, you might hear it called the epistle to the Romans. Uh, that's the, the, the technical terminology. But, but Paul is writing this letter. And Paul, if you, if you know anything about him, he was a persecutor of Christians. So he was a cause of suffering for Christians. His name originally was Saul. And then he had this life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ everything turned around, and then he ended up becoming one of the greatest, if not the greatest missionaries that the world has ever known. 
And so he's the author. That's who's writing this letter inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he's writing to believers in Rome, like actual Rome in, in Italy. So at this time, it was the heart of the Roman Empire. And he hadn't met them yet, but, but he is detailing the gospel and, and, and telling them, giving them some hope for what, uh, what they're facing right now. So we're in the middle of this letter, and, and we uh, encourage you to read the whole thing. You could just start with chapter 1 tomorrow and be caught up to chapter 8 if you read one chapter a day this week and really have the full context of the whole letter. Well, well, last week, Daniel started us with a new unit of thought in verse 18. So your Bible might have like a section break or a new paragraph, something like that in, in verse 18. And we saw that in a time of suffering and waiting, there is help from God available to us. And specifically, that help is by his Holy Spirit, that his Spirit helps us by interceding for us, taking us and our pain and our weakness before God the Father. And one big caveat that, that we have seen throughout this, this whole chapter is, is that this help from God, this adoption by God into his forever family, all that the, the promises that these verses offer, these are only for those who are in Christ. Those who have trusted in who Jesus is, what he has done to take away their sin, forgive them, and, and then exchange that sin for his gift of righteousness, of a right standing with God. So it's, it's counterintuitive to our way of thinking, but we saw last week and, and in previous weeks that this reality for children of God, those who are in Christ, is that, that we're not immune to suffering in this world. In the, in the past couple of weeks, we've seen some good news uh, in, in light of that, that we have a loving father, we have an eternal inheritance to look forward to in his kingdom, we're adopted by him. And if that wasn't good enough, we have help in the meantime as we wait and as we struggle with life in this world, the spirit helps us in our weaknesses. And then if that wasn't good enough, this week there's, there's more good news coming. And we'll start into what we, we could call a coffee cup verse, okay? It's one of the most famous one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. Most of you, if not all of you, have heard this in some form or fashion in, uh, previously. Let's look at verse 28 as we start this morning at these amazing, amazing three verses that are just jam-packed full of great stuff. Verse 28 of Romans chapter 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, many of you have heard this verse. Maybe you've memorized it. Uh, you may not even have a church background, but you may have heard a phrase of this, or you may have heard some, some form of this. Uh, this. This is where it comes from. And Paul starts with what we know. He's, he's reminding the Roman Christians what they can know, what they can be confident about. But before he tells us what we know, he tells us who it applies to. So look at what it says in verse 828. For those who love God, this is another way of describing Christians, believers, followers of Jesus, those who are in Christ. If you're in Christ, then you love God. That's a sure marker of your life. And it's not because you're so wonderful. It's because of who he is. Why do we love God? We saw in 1 John, as we did a detailed study of that, we love him because he first loved us. We see that earlier in Romans, Romans chapter 5. It's a response to his love for us that we love God. So for those who love God, we know. Well, what do we know? Paul tells us all things work together for good. Now, all things is, is not just good things. That, that doesn't bother us, right? If, if, if I see a sunrise or if I feel a cool breeze or I just have a really great day, I have no problem thanking God for that. Like you have 
a day where you have a great conversation with a friend, you get to have ice cream, you know, something like that. Like, God, I thank you. I trust you. Life is going great. I praise you. I love you. That's easy, right? But all things also includes mundane things, ordinary things. You get up and you go to work. You brush your teeth. You clean the dishes. You mow the grass. All, all, those, all those mundane, ordinary things would be included in all things. And then especially, all things would include our pain, our suffering, and our difficulties. All things includes all of that. Now, this, this is one of the greatest promises in the entire Bible, and it can be one of the greatest comforts, but we need to take a minute to address what this verse is not saying. And sometimes we misapply this truth, we, we misinterpret it, and we can, we can mislead ourselves and others about what it actually says. So, so we could call this a coffee cup verse. I, I mean that quite literally. I'm going to show you a, a picture of a coffee mug that I found online. Uh, maybe you have this exact mug in your house. Uh, if, if you do, nothing wrong with that. Uh, you can keep drinking out of it. But we're going to grab onto what this verse says and hold on to this promise and how we can actually comfort one another with it. Uh, in, a, in a biblical way. Let's make sure we use it in the right way. So here, we, we, could, we could spend a lot of time this morning uh, detailing some wrong uses of this verse. We'll just look at a few. So wrong coffee cup conclusions from Romans 8.28, okay? So these are, these are myths. These are not true, okay? Just to clarify. Um, number one, good things will happen and we'll avoid suffering if we're living right, right? Like just this, this past week, meeting up with some guys, there was this really full parking lot. There was no parking spaces. Well, right as one of the guys pulled up, somebody had pulled out, and he, and he got a spot. And it just kind of like popped out of him like, ah, oh, you must be living right. Now, do I believe that? Is that really, really deep in my soul? I don't think so, but that just kind of pops out of us sometimes. What does that say about the guy who got there five minutes later, and he had to park like a 10-minute walk down the street, right? He must not be living right. So that, as if that's how God operates. But this entire passage written to believers, it makes clear that suffering will be a part of our lives here in this broken world. And, and that's before Jesus comes back, before he redeems everything, sets everything right, that's going to be normal for us. And if things work out for us, if something goes really well, it's because of God's grace and his goodness. All things work together for good does not mean that we're going to avoid suffering. So, that's wrong. Coffee cup conclusion number one. Number two, bad things happen because of something I did. This is just the flip side of number one, right? That, now, there is some truth to this. Yes, if you do something stupid, if you do something sinful, then there is this principle of reaping what we sow, right? So there, there are times that those things can be a cause of suffering in our lives. But it is not necessarily the case that if something bad is happening, if you are suffering in a certain way, that that's a result of sin you committed or something that you did. Eden just wrote, read from a little part of the book of Job. If you read the book of Job, it, it, it is clear he was presented as the most righteous person alive at that time. And, and then his suffering was not a result of any particular sin in his life. That's what his friends tried to suggest. Well, this, this stuff must be happening to you because of what you've done. And, and God very clearly and forcefully rebukes them for that. So it's, it's not always the case, and, and often it's not the case, that something bad that happens or something that we're going through is a result of, of something we've 
done. That was a big point of last week, is that suffering is a universal experience for all of us in this broken world, and that does not exclude those who are believers. So, yes, sometimes it can result in our, perf- in our uh, personal suffering, and sometimes God allows those things to get our attention and mercifully wake us up, but that's not always the case. And, and, and back to wrong conclusion number one, it, we, we cannot live such a good life that we're going to avoid suffering and, and expect that nothing bad will happen if we love God. That, that would be a wrong conclusion from this verse. Number three, wrong coffee cup conclusion. All things are actually good. Now, there's a big difference between saying all things work together for good, that God is working so that all things will, will lead to a good place. There's a big difference between that and then calling a bad thing good. Death is not good. Sin is not good. Committing a crime against somebody is not good. Sickness is not good. So we we don't want to call a bad thing good. But we can trust that God can bring good out of anything and everything that we face. So wrong coffee cup conclusion number four. Last one that we'll look at of, of many that we could. All things work out for good, and the implication is that that's for everyone. This might be the most common misapplication of verse 28. That we try to comfort somebody, well, this is going to turn out for good. You know, there, there's there's, there's going to be a better day coming. Like, you know, you'll, you'll get past this. I wish we could give that promise from this verse and that comfort to everyone. But this, this amazing promise, and it is an amazing promise, it, but it's not for everyone. Suffering is a universal experience, but for those who are not in Christ, the suffering in this world, it, it's only a foreshadowing of the judgment to come, and it's going to be even worse. So if you're hearing this, and you're not a follower of Jesus, we don't want to point you to some vague sense that things are going to work out and everything will eventually be all right. We cannot offer that hope apart from Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we can offer you a very sure, a very certain hope in that. But this verse is meant for a very specific group of people. Look back in verse 28. Those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Let's look at verse 28 a little bit different way maybe than some of you are are used to. Uh, This is something you could do in a journal. You could do it on a piece of paper. Uh, But but to study the Bible this way and really pay attention to the flow of thought, the key words, uh, and, and, and the main ideas... Up on the screens, you see, you see it kind of laid out a little bit differently, that we know well, what's, what's the main clause or the main, the main idea of what we know. It's that all things work together for good. But there's, there's two supporting caveats, okay, two, two explanatory um, limiters on that. And, and it says, for those, that word is repeated throughout this passage, for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. So the next question is, well, what is his purpose? What, what is the good that God is working all things together toward? Well, Paul says, I'm glad you asked. I wrote a whole letter, not just one verse. So put that on a coffee cup, memorize it. That's fine, but don't separate it from what comes next. Keep reading. What is God's purpose? What is the good he's working towards? Verse 29 gives us the answer to that question. Look at verse 29. For or because... Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined 
to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, here in verse 29, kind of continuing that layout to show these connections, we, we see his purpose. We see the good that God is working for those who love him. He starts with four, or you could translate that because he's explaining, giving the grounding for this amazing promise in verse 28. He's giving, giving us that grounding in verse 29. So that those uh, connects back, those he foreknew connects back to those in verse 28, same group of people. Now let's talk about that word for a minute. What does it mean that God foreknew those those people. This isn't a word that we use a lot, uh, and it has more than one simple definition. Uh, some would understand this to say that God, in eternity past, looked ahead and saw those who were going to have faith in Christ. He, they, he, he saw who was going to respond, who was going to love him, and he foreknew that fact about them, what they would do, and that's the sense in which he foreknew. Others would say, no, it's, it's not anything about them or about what they did that God foreknew, like, like they would choose to follow Jesus that he foreknew that. Rather, it's the people themselves that he foreknew. So when we run up against something like this in the Bible that's, that's unfamiliar to it, it, it always helps to define our terms. And you could find this kind of thing on a free online Bible dictionary or lexicon. Uh, there's, there's a lot of great resources to, to look up some of these words that are a little tricky for us. Uh, there's two basic definitions that are translated in the New Testament for foreknew. And, and one way that it's used is, is about foreknowing something, like a fact. Another way that it's even more commonly used in the New Testament is about foreknowing someone. So it's, it's the idea of foreknowing someone with this idea of choosing beforehand to be in a certain kind of a relationship with a person or a group of people. So knowing beforehand something like a fact, and more commonly, knowing beforehand someone with a sense of choosing to be in a close relationship. Here's a couple examples of the, the foreknowing someone. A little bit later in Romans, Romans chapter 11, talking about Israel, God says this, God has not re rejected his people whom he foreknew. So this is talking about God's chosen people, as Israel's called through the Old Testament, and God chose them for a special relationship. He set his love on them. That's what we see throughout Genesis and Exodus and then through the Old Testament story. A New Testament example, 1 Peter 1, verse 20, talking about Jesus. It says, For he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So when God foreknows someone, it means he has set his love on them beforehand in a, in a very personal way. And so at this point, we could dive into a lot of weeds on some of the historical debates about God's foreknowledge, election, predestination. You might have heard words like Calvinism, Arminianism. Uh, that is beyond the scope of what we have time to do this morning. There are a lot of things that we can look at in Scripture. Ephesians 1 is a good place to study. John chapter 6. Uh, if you want to buy me a really strong cup of coffee, I would be more than happy to sit down and, and dialogue through some of these if you're interested in, in some of those things. But the main point of this passage is that God foreknew us, those of us who are in Christ, and he predestined us for something. He, he predetermined a destination or a destiny for those that he foreknew. Look back at verse 29. It says, those, he fore, those whom he foreknew, 
he also predestined. Predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. This is the good that God is working together, working all things together toward. This is his purpose for which he called us. It's to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, I'm not an artist. Uh, I made a C in my 10th grade art class. Shocker, I know. Um, that was the last art of any kind that I, that I undertook. But I, I do have at least some appreciation for amazing works of art. Uh, m- many of you are familiar with the sculpture David by Michelangelo. It stands 17 feet tall, it weighs more than 12,000 pounds, and it's sculpted from a single block of white marble. Now, we're keeping this PG, uh, family-friendly version of that that we'll have this morning, but I want to show you that. Um, So this is David, um, slightly modified, and if you're a real art enthusiast, you're you're cringing right now, so we're just going to zoom in on the upper body and, and focus there, okay? Now, the, the history on this sculpture is, is debated a little bit. Uh, but, but a story is told that Michelangelo was asked, how can he make such an amazing work of art, the detail, the precision, the beauty, from this big block of marble? And, and his response was something like this, that before he started, he could see it clearly. He could see it perfectly. And then what did he do? He said, you just chip away everything that doesn't look like David. God is working all things together for our good. And that good does not imply a lack of bad things, a lack of suffering. We've seen that all over this passage. God is not necessarily working to make us more wealthy or giving us perfect kids or the perfect job that's going to finally make us happy. The good that he's doing is not about making us more comfortable in this world. The good that he's doing is about conforming us, molding us, shaping us, polishing us, and chipping away everything that doesn't look like Jesus. That's his destination that he has predetermined for us. If you love God, if you are one of those He set his love on you and determined long ago that those of us who are in Christ would be conformed, would be transformed, would be molded to be more like his son, that we would be in his image, going all the way back to God's original design in creation in Genesis 1 and 2. And then the verse doesn't stop there. Why is he doing that? What's his ultimate purpose in that? You see, at the very end of verse 29, in order that, that's a purpose clause, it shows the purpose for which God is doing this, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. That Jesus would have the place of preeminence, of supremacy, the place of honor. That God the Father's ultimate goal in this predestined plan is not about us. Do you see that? Do you see that in this passage? It's about his son, ultimately that we're adopted by God. There are so many blessings for us. There's an inheritance for us. We're brought into his family, and then he molds us. He shapes us. He conforms us, so we bear the family image after Christ, the firstborn son. So it's ultimately for Christ's glory 
that, that God is working this good of conforming us to Christ's image. Back to verse 28, it, it's, it's one of the greatest promises in the Bible, but we need to be careful not to separate it from verse 29, where we actually understand what God's purpose is and what the good is that he intends. And then we can see this really is some of the greatest hope that we could have in life and especially in suffering. Some of the greatest hope we could ever imagine because, because God is working. And because God is working, nothing is wasted. Absolutely nothing in our lives is wasted. He's working through all of it. He's working through a disability. He's working through a season of disappointment. He's working when we lose a loved one. He's working through a period of loneliness in our lives. He's working through the path that you are pursuing that didn't work out or the relationship that didn't work out. He's working through all of that. If you're in Christ, your Heavenly Father who has adopted you into his family is using all of those things to shape you, to mold you, to transform you, to become like Jesus. That's what he's doing. I don't know if there's any greater comfort for the Christian or, or stronger source of hope as we endure suffering than these truths. And ultimately, it's not about you and it's not about me. It's about Jesus being first and having that place of honor as our Lord, as our Savior, as our elder brother in the family. So we can sum it up this way so far, verses 28 and 29, that for those in Christ, God is working all things for good to make us like Jesus. And now let's put that together with verse 30. So continue with me, if you would, in verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 30 forms what many have called the unbreakable chain of salvation. That, that this is what God has for those who, who love him, who are called according to his purpose, and are being conformed by God to the image of Christ. Those people... God foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. Now, called is the idea of an invitation, a, a summons. In this case, a divine summons into a relationship with God as Father and to be in his family. Justified is a very, very central theme throughout Romans, all the way up uh, but before what we were looking at here. To be justified is to be declared righteous, that, that, that God looks at us and because, not because we have cleaned up our act, but because we are united with Jesus, we're in Christ. Because of that, he looks at us and he declares us to be free of charges. We are in the right, we're in a right standing with him. Uh, one of many places earlier in Romans, Romans 3, verses 23 and 24, many of you know this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we're called, justified, and then glorified. This word glorify, if you look it up in the, the dictionary, it, it, it means in the, in the New Testament to cause to have splendid greatness, to, to clothe in splendor. And this refers to God fully and finally eradicating sin and making us perfect, body and soul, 
And, and this is the final link of the chain. And it brings us back to where Paul started this whole section in verse 18, where he said this. He said in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then in verse 22, he said, Along with the whole creation, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now, depending on your background and, and what you, you might have been taught or, or just thought about the, the afterlife for those who are believers, uh, this, this could be a new thought to you. But did you realize that a key aspect of being glorified is the redemption of our physical bodies that we see detailed in 1 Corinthians 15 and, and many other places in the New Testament that God will give us new bodies, something that it, it, it's maybe something like we can picture when Jesus rose from the dead in his new glorified eternal body, that it's incorruptible, no sickness, free from sin, no pulled muscles, no aches and pains in the morning. Everyone over 40 said, Amen. Amen. And that's just the tip of the iceberg in being glorified, that we will join Jesus in, in his glory, the eternal kingdom of God, in this family and in this, this new reality where there is no sin, there is no sickness, there is no death, and there's no suffering. And then glorified in this verse, interestingly, is past tense. Think about that. Like, from our perspective, it, it's definitely future. We're going to be glorified. We will be glorified. But it's past tense in this verse, along with the others, because this is so sure. It's so settled in the plan and the purposes of God that it's as good as done. From, from God's perspective, we are glorified. There's, there's so much that we could wrap our, our minds and hearts around in these three verses, but I, I want to give you one more picture to, to kind of bring these ideas together. Um, several years ago, I had the opportunity uh, to visit Italy. And, and again, I'm not much of an art guy, but if you go to Italy, you kind of get into it. You, you, you kind of can't help it. Um, I want to show you a picture of something I saw there. We'll put this up on, on the screens. Uh, this is a work of art. And I know you're saying, like, well, I'll take your word for it. Um, it looks like an underground tunnel or maybe like a long potato or something. Um, this is actually a painting. It's, it's a priceless work of art. It's beautiful. It's, it's amazing. You might say, well, okay, that's, that's your opinion. Um, it doesn't look like much to me. Uh, you might even say it's ugly. You might even say, well, I could do that. It's, that's pretty bad. What if I told you this so inspired me that I went out on the street and I bought an overpriced tapestry because I wanted to take this with me? And what if I told you that the artist is the same one who sculpted David? It's Michelangelo. Let me show you a picture of what I bought. Now you recognize. This is from the creation of Adam on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. The image on the screen that you saw a minute ago is just a small portion of a representation of the hand of God in the picture. The, 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 the artist's way of showing the closeness, the intimacy, the personal touch that God has with his creation. And what you can't see in that little zoomed-in portion is, is this. And, and you certainly can't see the next picture. The next picture is a Sistine Chapel ceiling flattened out so you can see the whole thing. It's an unbelievable work of art. 
And it tells a great, great story. Here's the point. What if all you could see was that little zoomed-in piece of the hand? You might say, that's ugly. You might say, that's, that's bad. It, it's certainly not beautiful. And that's how we see, oftentimes, the bad things in our lives. If and when bad things happen to us, that we, we go through suffering, we find ourselves in a terrible situation, and we can't see any way this is going to turn out for good, we don't have any hope to hold on to, here's what that means. It just means the artist isn't done yet. It just means we can't see the whole picture. There's, there is a bigger picture that God has. He is going to work all this together. And he's not calling a bad thing good, but he's going to work in the midst of it to eventually show us that even in difficult seasons, even in hard things that we have to endure, even in bad things, even in suffering, he has a bigger purpose. He has a bigger plan. And we just have to wait we have to walk by faith, we have to persevere, and we have to trust him that eventually, eventually, we will see what the master artist is doing. So what is it that he's doing? He is working all things for good to make us like Jesus. And then here is an unbreakable hope in verse 30 for those in Christ that God chose to set his love on us beforehand. And he set our destination to be transformed, to be like Jesus. He has invited us into his family, and we come. He declares us to be right, to be in a right standing with him, free of charges. And he finally and fully delivers us from sin and completes our transformation and finishes that work. That's what he's doing. And who is doing all of this? It's God doing it. So the assurance of these promises doesn't rest in us and how well or not well we respond to suffering. It rests in God and who he is and what his plan is. So as we wait, we may have years of pain, we may have years of, of suffering, difficulty, but we can say with Paul, where we started last week in verse 18, that, that I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Why can we say that? Why can we be people of hope and people of confidence even when we suffer, even when truly bad things happen? It's because, as we saw last week, the Spirit of God helps us in our weaknesses. And then today we know God is working all things for good to make us like Jesus and will most certainly finish his work and bring us into his eternal glory. If we have any doubt that, that God can take something bad and work it out for good, we don't have to look any further than the cross. Was there ever any greater evil in the history of the world? Was there any greater injustice than the Son of God being crucified? And, and was there ever a time that, that things looked any more hopeless and pointless when he died and when he was buried. But out of the worst thing that has ever happened in human history, God brought the greatest good imaginable for any of us. 
And God is still working for good, and he's working all things for good, and he's working that towards his ultimate purpose. If you're here today and you're in Christ, you're a child of God, you love him, uh, and, and maybe, maybe you're just struggling through a hard season, maybe something bad has happened, maybe there's a period of suffering or a period of confusion or, or a period of just ordinary mundane that you're walking through, this gives us the assurance this gives us the hope that we can move into this week with a rock-solid certainty of how our circumstances are eventually going to turn out and of what God is doing in the midst of it and how he's working. And maybe we need the reminder that this wasn't just written to individual Christians in Rome. It's written to a church. It's written to a group of believers. It's not just this is true for each of us in this room individually who are in Christ. It is true for us as individuals, but it's also true for us together, that we're a family, that we walk through life, the good, the ordinary, and especially the hard stuff, that we walk through it as a family together. So if you're going through some of those things, don't walk that alone. Uh, just like uh, our, our students were encouraged this last Wednesday night to take struggles and doubts and questions to God and to each other and walk those things together and not away from him in the midst of it. Maybe you're here today and you're not in Christ. Uh, you haven't trusted in Jesus. You're not following him. Or you're not sure where you, what you think or believe or, or where you fall with any of this. Well, as comforting and as hope-giving as these truths are, these things are true, first of all, because, only because of who Jesus is. And they're true for us, those who are in Christ, because we've given ourselves to him. So if you're outside of him, none of those promises are true for you. And we can't offer you that hope. But those can be true for you if you will entrust yourself to him, if you will receive Jesus for who he is and what he's done. And we would absolutely love to talk with you about any of that, work through any questions, any objections, any doubts, anything else that you'd be willing to explore with us. We would love to do that. As we close this morning, the worship team is going to come and lead us in a final song. One more chance to express our hearts to him, thank him for the hope he offers in Christ. So if you would pray with me, and then we'll sing together. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these, these three verses um, and just these incredible truths, we're, we're reminded of things that have happened in our past, things maybe we're walking through right now, things that we're worried about in the future. And, and Lord, we, we struggle. We have weakness. And so we thank you that you have offered us your spirit to help us in our weakness. And we thank you that you have given us great and precious promises that we can anchor our lives into. That, that no matter what we're facing, that we can know that you are working and that you are conforming us and you will make us like your son and bring us into your family. And that those good things that you promised to your children can never be lost. Help us to, to, to anchor ourselves into those truths uh, when, we're, when we doubt, when we falter, uh, when our faith is weak, and help us to walk those things together and, and trust you and believe what you've said. We ask it in Jesus' name.